In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am excited to bring on author Jeff Kurdy, whose treasured The Art of Mulan book was reissued earlier this year in the anticipation of the new live-action production. While the new take of the film has yet to debut, the celebrated animated version lives again in splendid form through this art book's reissue. So here we talk about Jeff's career and various projects for Disney, The Art of Mulan, and what lies ahead for the always busy author. I also want to add that if you have listened to Notably Disney in the past, I referenced Jeff because he actually served as the external committee member on my undergraduate honors thesis all about Epcot, so it was really wonderful to talk with him again. I also want to add that there were some uh, t technical connectivity issues uh, with part of the recording, so you will notice that there are some instances, um, especially in the first, third, first half of the interview, um, where the audio briefly cuts out um, at points and then speeds up. So unfortunately, uh, that can only be edited to a certain degree, so uh, please bear with that. And I am so excited to direct all of you to this conversation with Jeff Curdy. Having authored more than 30 books and having worked for or in association with the Walt Disney Company for nearly four decades, Jeff Curdy is a leading writer and expert on the entertainment giant. Some of Jeff's recent titles have included The Art of Disney Costuming, Heroes, Villains, and Spaces Between, love that title, uh, Practically Poppins in Every Way, a magical carpet bag of countless wonders, and travels with Walt Disney, a photographic voyage around the world. And today we are here to discuss his career as an author in general, including writing The Art of Mulan, which was recently reissued. So it's a thrill to have you on, Jeff. I've known you for a little while now, and you, you were an important part of my uh, undergraduate honors thesis on Epcot, and I'm glad we could reconnect today. So welcome to Notably Disney. 
Oh, it's nice to talk to you again, Brett. I, it's nice to see the babies grow up. <laughs> you, were, you were, just a few years ago, you were just a kid. Yeah, time flies, huh? And, and a, lot, <laughs> a lot has happened in our world, too. And, oh, my gosh, yeah. And that was late 2014. And in that time, you have published a number of really great titles and contributed to the ongoing legacy of preserving different history about Disney. And this is really just a wonderful opportunity to um, learn a little bit more about your background and really highlighting a book that is garnering a lot of attention, even though it's been around for a while, but it's now seeing new life with the recent reissue. So a lot to discuss. Let's go. Well, let's kind of start off with um, some basics. Now, listeners of this podcast are definitely fans of Disney books, and they're probably pretty familiar um, with the many titles that you have written over the past 25 years for Disney, very notably being Since the World Began, about Walt Disney World, which is one of my favorites, Walt Disney's Imaginary Legends, you know, the list goes on and on. But I'm wondering if you could maybe give folks some context on how you became an author, because um, I understand and I know that you held various roles for Disney. You're a senior communications specialist for WDI, senior marketing rep for the company more generally. Kind of what was your path from these types of roles to really um, owning your, your stake as a, a really big Disney author? Well, like so many things in life, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of opportunities that get put in front of you as you go along. And I think a lot of it has to do with recognizing opportunities and being either bold enough or stupid enough to raise your hand and say, I'll do that. Um, my Disney career starts when my mother took me to see Mary Poppins in the theater when I was a kid. And I think I was probably five. And that was the beginning of, of connecting with something that was the Disney culture. And through my childhood, it was a hobby and an avocation. And as I got older and realized that there were actually people who, who had jobs who did Disney stuff, that became a focus and a goal. As I grew older, I, I re a lot of people say, oh, I want to work at Disney. I, I need to be an artist. So I had an interest in art, and I had a you know, predisposition for drawing funny cartoons and stuff when I was in school. Uh, I went to art school. I wasn't good at art. But what I started to recognize and realize was, I mean, it sounds corny, but when you're handed lemons, you make lemonade. So I, I started to, to go on to a, a pathway where if things didn't go well, and this is very, very much in the Disney culture, find what works and focus on that and get rid of what's not working. Um, Walt Disney did this several times in his career. Long story short, I wound up in Los Angeles in about 1983, and I went great guns at Disney, applying and applying and applying, and got rejected and rejected and rejected. Uh, ultimately, I went into working at Disney as an executive assistant for an executive that got hired in. When I got hired in, I happened to encounter a man named Jim Cora, and he at the time was the head of a group called Disneyland International. 
he went to my then boss and said, are you going to hire this guy in Disney? Because if you aren't, I'm going to. This was the first, uh, well, not the first, but it was the first professional point where somebody in Disney said, you're a Disney guy and I'm going to bring you in. My background was sort of spotty and strange in that I had worked in my hometown, Seattle, in theater and publicity and, you know, to giving tours at performing arts centers where I worked, writing press releases. It didn't seem to have any cohesive focus. It was the old question of what are you going to do when you grow up? A question I still cannot answer. Uh, because I think there are people who can focus and rack in and get on a, on a sort of a rail and have that kind of career where they say, you know, in high school, I'm going to be a biochemist and that's what they do. I think that my brain and my skills have to do much more with sort of creative spirals. Uh, I like to do a lot of things that have beginnings, middles, and ends that are in similar realms and then be able to move on and do something that's similar but brand new. But I got into Disney because of Jim. I wound up going to Walt Disney Imagineering. I worked there in the communications department for a fantastic uh, leader named to be a, a sort of a talking head for Imagineering uh, in communications communications. She got into a fix one day and needed a draft of a press release done really quick. And her usual people weren't around, or I can't remember how it wound up being given to me. I did a draft. I gave it to her and she came and stood in the doorway of my office and said, you didn't tell me you were a writer. And I looked at her and I said, huh? Because, of course, I had never thought of myself as a writer. I had always been a reader. I'd always enjoyed little writing assignments, press releases, and program copy and stuff. Um, but I'd never thought of myself in that role. Um, that's what it takes sometimes in a career is, and once again, Walt did this with a lot of people. You know, He looked at Blaine Gibson's little sculptures, and Blaine was an animator. Blaine went on to, of course, have an illustrious, legendary career doing sculpture at Disney. So. Sometimes it takes other people to point at you and say, this is what you are. This is what you do. And that, fortunately, is what happened to me. Because of my role in the company, of course, I became very much a student, very much a scholar about Disney in general, Disney's activity, Disney's reach, Disney's history. Um, and that led to being offered a role because I understood the culture of the company. And I think that's what's continued to be my strong suit ever since then is having a really deep cultural understanding of what makes Disney work. So I was called into a meeting over in corporate one evening to represent Walt Disney Imagineering and the following day, Betsy, my boss at Imagineering, got a call from the vice president of corporate synergy and special projects at the studio um, asking if she could hire me away from Imagineering. So I got into a fairly significant corporate role that had to do, it was called corporate marketing, but it had to do with 
synergy between the cultural elements of the company and creating uh, cross-departmental relationships that had an understanding of what the core Disney values were. So very often it was simply a tracking role where I was saying, hey, we're doing this goofy thing in 1992. Hey, contact in Disney Parks and Resorts. Let's put some goofy stuff on the plate for 1992, that sort of thing. Um, ultimately, after about five years in that corporate role, I had sort of hit the ceiling in what my role was. And for a variety of reasons, I couldn't be promoted. It wasn't because I was a bad person. Uh, it was just some, some structure and politics in the department that was uh, intractable. And my VP said, why don't you become a consultant? And that way you can work with all the different departments at Disney and do all kinds of different things. Um, she recognized too, I think, that I really enjoyed this sort of project work based on a fundamental uh, subject. So I did that. I immediately got a role in the Disney Channel as a freelancer doing uh, scripts for marketing, on-air marketing uh, for the Disney Channel. And shortly after that, I published my first book, which was a non-Disney book. And that led to being asked to do Since the World Began, the 25th anniversary book about Walt Disney World. Of course, that's 25 years ago, yipe. Um, yes. Uh, that led to a relationship. Uh, that led to a relationship with named Wendy Lefcon, and Wendy and I have been f friends and colleagues and collaborators on a big chunk. I mean, Wendy gave me my literary career, to tell you the truth. She uh, looked at the work that I had done while I was at Imagineering. She uh, saw my first uh, book and took a, took a leap of faith that, that I could do since the world began. And that led to um, sort of the next and the next and the next to the point where we're currently trying to figure out how many books I've done because we're up into the low 30s. I think we're uh, getting our total about 34 to 36 Disney books, um, either for Disney publishing or for licensees like Chronicle and Becker and Meyer and some of the other uh, licensed publishing partnerships. That freelancing also led for me led to me being asked to consult on a lot of projects. And consulting is kind of a great gig because you get to go at a sit at a table or sit in a meeting room and and uh, you know pretend that you're smart and uh, they don't hear your little interior voice um, going. I, am I qualified to be here? <laughs> They, um, but a lot of the consulting led to ultimately consulting with Walt Disney Home Video and with a production company that was working for uh, Disney Home Video at the time and starting to do documentary programming that was being used on classic Disney title home video releases and then 
helping Disney enter into the brave new world of the DVD and sort of creating the paradigm for the DVD supplement content specifically for Disney. And uh, that was where I first worked with a a, a home video, uh, the head of home video, a guy named Bob Chapek. Uh, was then the head of home video. So um, that that's an interesting connection uh, way back 20-some years ago. Ultimately, that continued to lead to project after project within Disney WDI, um, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, um, and on down the line. So it's it's been a sort of a multi-platform, multi-subject, multi-project career, but as you point out, the great through line and the sort of the great stable and lasting uh, product of what I've seen books. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Jeff. What I've really always appreciated in talking with you and learning about you is that as you illustrated, you have such a, a deep understanding of the company culture and so many different components of Disney whether it be the parks or the films or Walt Disney himself, it's really remarkable. And I'm wondering in terms of, since you have had in this um, latter part of your career, this you know past 25 years or so with writing books, wh- what's kind of your process of crafting a title when the opportunity is presented to you? Or have there even been opportunities where you've, uh, shared ideas and and they've amounted to uh, coming to fruition. The the projects have come from all different quarters. Um, there have been times when it's been basically an assignment. That's here we're doing a book on Princess and the Frog. We're doing a book on Tangled. We want to hire you to do it, and then my job becomes much as it is in any documentary format. And this has sort of evolved over the years from something that was instinctive to something that I sort of understand. In any one of these projects, I'm telling a story. I even tell my children to this day, whether you're writing an email or writing a short essay for school or writing a note for the mailman, you need to tell a story. You need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end so that you can communicate what it is you want to communicate. What I've realized in chronicling Disney is I get called a historian a lot of the time, and I prefer to think of myself as a legacy authority because history tends to be very statistical and it tends to rely on dates and places. And and although those things are interesting on their own and important, they don't do much to contextualize or tell a story. So my process overall, whether it's a Imagineering Legends book or a book about Disneyland or a book about an animated feature or any of the projects I've done is, it kind of goes to a primary rule that Marty Sklar, the, the legend head of Imagineering for years, Marty Sklar's first rule of theme park design, know your audience. So the first thing I like to look at is who is who's reading or who's going to Disney because the culture is global and it's ageless. 
that I might be writing a book that a 13-year-old is going to pick up off of a table at Barnes and Noble and go, this looks like fun. But it's also going to go in the hands of a 58-year-old Disney fanatic who knows everything about the history of the company. And I have to make it interesting to that broad of an audience. I'm criticized sometimes by other Disney historians uh, who find my work superficial. This is one of the criticisms that I heard muttered behind my back, that um, the work that I... And I think that my work is, if I might be a, a little bit of a bragger, I think that my work is inspired by the Sherman brothers in the sense that they quite simple but are actually rather extraordinarily complex beneath that surface simplicity. So in approaching a book, what I'm trying to do is know my audience, tell them a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Have some sort of arc to the story. Have some sort of point having brought them along um, to talk about whatever that subject is. There are times, as you said, where... Uh, I'm assigned a book. There are times when I have been asked, what do you think? I work now um, with Wendy Lefcon, but also with a fantastic uh, senior editor named Jennifer Eastwood. And Jen and I are sort of birds of a feather, and we really are. So Jen and I have sat over the years and said, what... Would there have been opportunities to say, what can we put out there that people will connect with? Uh, one of the, those recently was the Disney idea that I'd had and been interested in for a lot of years, but uh, that was one where I brought it back to the table and said, how about this? Um, a book like Travels with Walt Disney actually originated when I was doing a speaking engagement on board the Disney Magic. Right. And they asked me to uh, a, a lecture on Di Walt and the crew and the crew and the cruise industry, Walt and cruise recreation, because Walt took a lot of cruises. So I thought I can do a little keynote and highlight Walt's travels on the sea. And it turned out to be a really interesting and deeper program than I thought it would be. Walt sailed a lot during his lifetime. He really enjoyed it too, which is bonus. So I sent a PDF of this keynote that I had done on the cruise line about Walt on cruise ships to Wendy Lefcon. And Wendy looked it over and she said, I love this, but I don't think it's big enough. One of the things that people don't know about Walt is that he was a world traveler. Why don't you do like a, uh, the world during his lifetime. And that's where Travels with Walt Disney came from. So again, the projects sometimes are assigned. Sometimes they're things that I bring to the table. Sometimes they're collaborative sort of formulations between us where we kind of do a yes and on the whole conceptual uh, realization. Yeah, of course. I, I appreciate the con. I appreciate the context. I'm wondering, Jeff, kind of 
transitioning to some um, specific ventures like the art of Mulan. How were how were you commissioned to craft this? I, I seem to recall, was this one of your first books when it came down to chronicling an animated film? That was my... I had been asked by Wendy to... They, they did a series of little books in the late 80s that were called Disney Miniatures. And they were actually sort of little miniaturized editions of several of the popular existing Disney publishing titles. So they were like mini editions of The Art of the Lion King or The Art of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. They asked to do a miniature edition of The Little Mermaid. But of course, there was no big book of The Little Mermaid to miniaturize. So they hired me to do that. One of my friends and my great mentor in life, Thomas Schumacher, was in... Uh, executive VP role at Disney Animation. So when Wendy said, I think we should ask Jeff Curdy to do it, Tom Schumacher said, sure, he's great. Um, so that led to my being considered an ally and an asset in animation. So when the audience of my past experience on this funny little Little Mermaid book to be able to go back to Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider at animation and say, I think Jeff should do Mulan. And they both said, of course. So it was actually my fourth book, number four. And I was intimidated beyond words, but I really wanted to do a good job. And it began, I think, my storytelling process in a lot of ways. Going and doing, it's all, it's, it's, to me, it's always interesting to go into a production like Mulan or later on, as I did with Princess and the Frog or, or um, Tangled, to go into the production and begin to understand their point of view and how they see the world. And this is how it started on Mulan. I went in, they were making the film down in Florida and I went and spent a couple of weeks in Florida with that whole creative group and the producer, Pam Coates, who is still a friend after all these years, and um, really got into the bloodstream of understanding the production's own culture. You know, there's the Disney culture, but each production has its own vibe, and it has its own realities, and it has its own perspectives. And the job on Mulan, and then on future documentation work, like it is to reflect what I found about the identity of that production back out into the way I told the story. And that's the biggest compliment I've gotten on those making of books. Um, Schumacher still says the art of Mulan, I think more than any other document really reflects how we made films back then. And I've had, um, you know, Ron and John and, and Peter Delvecco on, on Princess and the Frog say, you captured what our production's identity was. And very much the same with Roy Connolly and, and uh, the directors of, of The Art of Tangled, or the directors of Tangled with The Art of Tangled, that that's what I did. I documented what their production's personality was, as well as the fundamentals of how it got made. 
But that started with the art of Mulan. Um, it was, as I said, it was an intimidating thing. But ultimately, I was very, very proud of it. And um, it led, once again, to more of that kind of work, doing the books for A Bug's Life, and, uh, and then sort of being able to branch out and do some other kinds of, of Disney writing, um, mainly because I was trusted and I had the evidence to be able to point, you know, people would look at it and go, oh, yeah, this, this guy's okay. Um, but that was really where it began, and it got me embedded in Disney animation in a, in a, a a sort of a visiting visiting colleague kind of identity. So I was known in the hallways and, and the offices at, at animation, and I was seen as an ally and a friend and a supporter. That in turn gives you more access as a documentarian because then those people trust that you're going to tell their story and tell it uh, well and tell it authentically. And that's very important, particularly to artists. Um, presenting their work with authenticity is vital to them. And I'm, I'm proud that I've been able to do that and to represent those terrific artists. Um, because, of course, you know, I'm a guy who went to art school and sucked at it. So I admire them completely. As you're talking, Jeff, I'm, I'm thinking about the art of Milan and, and some of the points that you illustrated. You're, you're essentially a storyteller and, and one who wants to really thoughtfully and honestly share people's experiences. So whether it be the research trip that many of the, the key folks went on to visiting China or even talking about each of the main um, animators for the lead characters, you're what I appreciate as a reader is really having a good understanding of each of the key people. Could you maybe talk about your process of ensuring that you're able to not only gather all these perspectives, but that they also are, are presented in unison to form a really cohesive narrative? What is the greatest thing about these books is I think the people who make the films understand their long-term value, that they are the record. So I'm given a lot of access. And because, as I said before, because I engaged in a way that gained trust and I take that responsibility seriously, that gave me not only access to the individuals, but then the individuals knew that they could be comfortable in talking to me and that I wouldn't, you know, there's nothing salacious about what I'm doing. There was going to be no gotcha about anything. So typically what happens, especially on project-based documentation or documentary writing, a lot of it is for each individual understanding. So I have to, my research constitutes knowing who I'm going to talk to and what their background is, whether it's a production designer, a character designer, an animator. I need to know who they are and what they've worked on so that I can get a sense of where to guide my questions. Where do I guide my interview so that I not only show them 
that I understand them and I know about them and that they're safe to, to talk about. The other thing it shows is that you're smart. I don't mean that in a, you know, egotistical way, but showing people that you're smart about what they do makes them speak to you intelligently. They're not going to edit because, you know, you're writing for a magazine and you've never written about animation before and so on. So you tend to get smarter interviews by walking into the room more informed about each individual. What happens during the course of those several interviews, and sometimes there are dozens of them, everyone from the producer and director of the film on down to the composer of the music score, character voices, or that kind of thing. What, why, once you start talking, what you have to do is position things and let them speak and try to simply moderate and manage that conversation. Um, I don't try to guide people to pat answers. I do tend to let, there are some people who are extremely articulate and you just let them roll. There are other people who need to be coaxed. There's one animator that I will spend, I've interviewed him on a couple of projects. I will spend an hour to get two or three extraordinary sentences out of the interview because he's not articulate about putting into words what he's doing or how he feels. But those two or three sentences are worth simply sitting and having a talk for an hour. What winds up happening is that across the breadth of all those interviews is the culture of the project percolates to the top. You'll find that each interview subject tends to go to thematics, goals, creative observations that are parallel to or that echo their colleagues. So it's fascinating to just listen and pay attention and go, hmm, the production designer is echoing exactly what the director said. And then, oh my gosh, the head of the um, inking and painting area is saying many of the same things that the director said or that the character designer said there becomes a rhythm and an echo and even a momentum to what they all talk about. And that has to do with listening and, and understanding and paying attention. And of course, the worst thing that happens, and you see this in, sometimes in, in books that are about the making of things, I should have no presence as a personality. And I think that becomes dangerous when you're a documentarian. Nobody cares about me. I am essentially an advocate and uh, eyes and ears for the reader. So that's how this storytelling sort of evolves naturally because it's not so much that I'm telling their story, they're telling their story to me and I'm writing it down. What I appreciate in you talking about this is the idea of that you, what's so special about books and, and, pros, and products like these are that so many voices whose 
so many individuals whose voices have never really surfaced finally have a spot to be highlighted. And, and as an author, that's a, a really important responsibility you hold. What's, how, you talk about building trust and um, good rapport with the individuals that you've talked with. What have been their reactions, like some of these animators or individuals who have never been quoted before, when they finally see the end product? I think one of the satisfying things about my Disney career overall is having been a long time and trustworthy transcriber, as I mentioned. That's, that's my role is I, I give the, as you said, I give voice to these people who very often are invisible. I grew up in the era of Disney where captions on photos of Imagineers said, not, you know, here is Jeff Burke, show producer of Frontierland at uh, Euro Disneyland. They said, here an industrious studio artisan works on. There was a period during the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s where uh, it was essentially part of the Disney job to remain an invisible Disney staffer. So when we began to be able in the 80s to start looking at these people as individuals and to present them as individual personalities and identities, um, I think it was fresh for a lot of them because there was no expectation at the time that you would get your own quote in an art book, or that the foundational element of these art books would be actual interview quotations. A lot of making of books tend to take a sort of third person narrative track through the whole thing and don't quote individual artists, designers, contributors. What's been satisfying for me, I mean, just in my deepest fanboy identity is still a huge fan of the Disney culture is how I've become friends with a lot of these guys. I was over at the animation building probably just at the beginning of the year, maybe. And to have artists and animators that I've known since those times in the late nineties come up and treat me like an old pal. Hey, what are you doing here? Are you working on a project here? Are you doing a book for us again? Are you doing a documentary? Um, and to have stayed in touch with so many of these people and count them as my actual friends is startling to me. Like I said, there's sort of an inner fanboy that never gets over the fact that, Hey, I can, you know, send an email to Kevin Lima and ask him this question and he'll answer it. Or, I don't know, let me ask Roger Allers or Rob Minkoff and find out from them. I still am humbled by that. And I still appreciate and love that. And I just, I try to maintain that humility naturally because it's like I've, I've said many times, I don't really make anything. I just follow around people who actually create and write down what they do. But to, to count so many of these amazing 
talents as as colleagues and friends is is a great satisfaction from doing the work and to tell you the truth it's probably the best endorsement of what i do that i could ever ask for um the fact that these people still think i'm an all right guy and you know will spend the time to to visit every now and then absolutely well one thing that you had shared a little bit earlier really stuck with me and i was making some connections across how you present material you you mentioned the idea of being a legacy authority mm-hmm. and 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 what i've always valued in you is that you just have such um a deep understanding and an appreciation for the company for for its strengths for challenges for things that perhaps um did not necessarily receive um the best feedback. And when I was reading The Art of Mulan, there was a quote in there that really connected with me. You you write, the immensity of the Disney organization as a commercial venture is inevitably and erroneously intermingled with its corresponding cultural importance. And what I think is really effective there is that you're giving background to the, the larger organization. And what I was thinking about and what I'm curious about is the idea of Mulan being developed um, as a film in the mid-90s when Pocahontas was released and received some challenges and criticisms regarding um, its portrayal of the figure and of the Native American community. What was your sense of working on the art of Mulan in terms of how Disney animation was approaching this subject matter because it was not necessarily um it wasn't western culture disney at the time and a great deal of this has to do with the leadership at disney at the time and particularly with the leadership on these projects of peter schneider and tom schumacher Um, these were guys who had come out of theater and not only had they come out of theater but they'd come out of international cultural events as well So they had a rich and deep global understanding of culture and the arts and storytelling. So there was nothing blasé about their approaching either Pocahontas or Mulan. Uh, And they sought out uh, authority figures and appropriate collaborators on both of those projects to make sure they weren't... uh, treading heavily with a Western or a white viewpoint. Uh, Pocahontas, I remember there was criticism that Pocahontas was beautiful. And I sat there and thought, well, what does that say on the backhand of that remark is what that we all know that the indigenous people were ugly? So portraying Pocahontas as beautiful is bad. I don't understand that kind of criticism. I do understand the simplified and European-focused storytelling on Pocahontas. I've always thought it would be, be fun to do like a stage musical adaptation and switch the perspective completely from a European colonialist narrative point of view basically, and turn it around. I always thought that would make a really interesting exploration of that material. With Mulan, 
there was an understanding that this tale was deeply embedded in Chinese history and culture. And so every element of care was taken to tread lightly and tread with authenticity. By the same token, you have to look that every time you're sitting around the fire and you pass the talking stick to somebody else, they're going to tell that story from a slightly different perspective and a slightly different voice. What's lost in the absence of context of the time is how daring creating a Disney animated feature that had essentially strong feministic points of view. Mulan is interesting because it messes with gender identity in, I think, really interesting and constructive ways. It deals with the conflict of filial piety in a really mature way. That is, how far does your obligation to your father, to your family, go? How far do you go as a descendant in protecting the individual and protecting the family culture? There's a lot working in Mulan that I think people don't notice, either now simply because it's been out in the world for two decades, or people grew up watching it and it's just another Disney animated feature from that era. But at the time, uh, as I said, extraordinary care was taken and there was some ambitious narrative uh, at work in how that story was told and how Mulan was presented and how her particular story evolved both with her as a character and within the culture of her community. I couldn't agree with you more on those points. And and that's kind of the beauty behind so many Disney animated films where there is a great degree of complexity and and even social justice issues being incorporated into the storyline, even if not everybody picks up on that. But you mentioned the points about fem- feminism and gender identity. Um, it's 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 a very deep film on, on that front and, and also just the notion of it being epic in scale with some of the sequences mm-hmm. and yet on the flip side a certain degree of simplicity in in terms of how certain scenes are constructed but even the most simple things have a lot of depth and one thing that one uh, line that i also really enjoyed from the book is you talk about artist hans bacher and his design as a quote seemingly incongruous combination of sophistication and simplicity, and that he was really influenced by the visual styles of Pinocchio and Dumbo. How, what's your interpretation of the visual style of Mulan? Because it seems to bridge a lot of different types of styles we've seen across Disney's animated legacy of films. It's fairly certain in the uh, work of Hans Bacher, there's a steady hand there. There's an intelligence to his design and his styling. Uh, In the approach to Mulan, once again, the idea was to reflect visually a sense of China. And not a sense of China in these sort of trite ways that you might of, of, uh, 
I don't know, the, the more typical import-export sort of Chinese art of scrolls and watercolors. And, but I think to present China the place, but in a way that had both the boldness of Ivan Durrell's graphic design for Sleeping Beauty, but also the storytelling grace of those watercolor backgrounds in Dumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't find anywhere in Mulan where any of the setting is at odds with any of the action. Every part of the setting is a component of the storytelling. And a lot of that also has to do with something that I think was more successfully carried out in Mulan than it was in Sleeping Beauty, which was uh, character designs that were completely harmonious with the rest of the production design. I think that Ivan Durrell and Tom Oreb really tried on Sleeping Beauty to get cohesion between characters, animation, and background, but it didn't quite work seamlessly. Um, there's still some disconnect between the character's design and animation and the world that Ivan Durrell created. You don't find that in Mulan. There was a harmonious voice in the visual production that I think is, again, I'll go back to the analogy that I I always point out to people with the Sherman Brothers song. They get constantly either derided as writing children's music or kiddie music. Um, They go by uh, the three S's, make it simple, singable, and sincere. That takes a lot of work. And that's why with the production design in Milan, and particularly the strong the strong viewpoint of Hans Bacher, you get something that has that intelligence, that innate skill, but it's presented in such a way that it's not showboating its complexity. It's using its simplicity as an an extraordinary support to storytelling. Creating something that is apparently simple or apparently elegant is one of those things. It's like, don't walk around the back of that and see all of the buttressing and (laughs) seams and cables holding it up and all of that stuff. Uh, Because there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in Mulan to make it that simple. It kind of makes me think of the notion of there's a lot more than meets the eye and this is a film that totally epitomizes that in terms of the, the level of, of depth in, in the presentation of the film. Well, and, and that's one of the things that I think makes so many Disney films so repeatable. It's like going to a Disney park or riding on a Disney attraction or listening to Disney music the layers of complexity are such that you can listen to a song or you can watch a film or go to a place for the hundredth time 
and suddenly go, I never noticed that before. Uh, that's the wonder of creating a cultural statement that is extraordinarily accessible and yet extremely complex. Absolutely. Well, kind of concluding our conversation on Mulan, at least, I, I want to ask you about the notion of repeatability or, or rather new life with this Art of Mulan book being reissued um, two decades after its debut. What's that feeling for you in terms of having a product that you created and so beloved essentially have a whole new generation of readers be able to check it out? I feel proud. I feel old. It's not 20 years ago in my head. And a lot has happened in that 20 years. I'm proud of the work. I'm really pleased for the filmmakers that Mulan has become such a classic with a capital C. The idea originally was Jennifer Eastwood, my editor at Disney Editions, and I, she, she called and said, you know, I've been looking at aftermarket. Aftermarket is, of course, you know, secondhand sales or eBay sales. And I have some titles that I've, have pretty frightening aftermarket prices on them. Very true. I've seen those as well. <laughs> I once saw a copy of The Art of Walt Disney World that somebody was selling for $600. And I thought, yow. Um, but she said, you know, it's consistently in the aftermarket and not for a dollar. People are selling copies of this. You know, it was originally a $60 coffee table book. It's still selling consistently at cover or above in the aftermarket. She said, I know there's going to be a whole new level of interest with the live action film. And there's still a connection with generations now of, of people who grew up with the animated feature. I'm wondering if we don't simply try to put Art of Mulan back out into the world. Um, my initial reaction was, <clears throat> if you think there's a market for it, I never know. <clears throat> um, my second reaction upon thinking about it was, uh, Tom Schumacher, who was the creative executive at Disney at the time, longtime uh, friend and, and colleague and mentor. And Tom has repeatedly and in my presence, blush, blush, said the art of Mulan is the document of how we made animated features in that era. It still to me is the best book uh, about how Disney animation worked. So that, of course, was the idea. We had Tom Schumacher do a new forward for the book to both establish the context of the film and its making in a past tense, because we were basically going with a straight across reproduction of the original book. We didn't want to update it and, and mess with the text and deal with tenses and and so on. So the solution was let's have Schumacher do a forward where he establishes the, the importance of the film and then talks about what people can look to within the book 20 years later that's going to be of value. 
So it was nice to be able to create a fresh contextualization. Of course, it's always nice to have new generations come to, to a book that you've done and appreciate it and acknowledge it and, and, and like it. So that's my, my sort of background and feelings on the, the new Art of Mulan. Uh, what are the, it's a Disney editions classic. It's been put out under that label. And it's nice to be a Disney editions classic, um, especially as a, you know, once again, the inner fanboy going, I've done things for Disney that will last. That's, you know, it's not a blockbuster international film success. It's not a theme park or an attraction that will last forever, but books have an eternity to them that makes me feel proud that I've left some imprint on that part of Disney's culture. For sure. I, I, I love these art books as just wonderful compliments to the films themselves and, and many of the other titles serving as a really good understanding of whatever the subject matter is. And so as we think about Mulan, I, I must ask, do you have any thoughts of the upcoming live action production? Have you seen any footage? Where do you stand in this considering you have such a close connection to the original animated film? Well, I'm one of those uh, Disney fans who sees the reboots and remakes as a continuation of the culture. And I think that each one of the reboots or remakes lives or dies on its own merits. And many of them are actually distinctly different in the sense that I look, for instance, at Aladdin. And Aladdin is not a musical as an animated film. It's a sort of a action film with some songs. Um, but it's pure animation in this you look all you look no farther than Eric Goldberg's animation on the genie. Pure animation. Then I look at the stage musical of Aladdin, and it's a reinvention of the same characters and situations, but in a completely different vernacular. It's a true musical and it's a stage musical. So it does things with its storytelling that are inherent in the medium. Then the recent live action remake last year is again a whole different take on the same characters and story. It has a uh, it has a feel of a sort of a family action comedy with some songs in it. It has more relationship to the animated feature, I think, than people might feel. So just overall, in terms of reboots, remakes, revisitations, I like that. Once again, I get a blowback from the fan base a lot of the times about, oh, another remake. And then you raise your hand quietly and say, you know that about 70% of what Walt Disney did was remakes. Exactly. You know, uh, Swiss Family Robinson was a remake. Treasure Island was a remake. Uh, even Summer Magic was a remake of a thing called Mother Carrie's Chickens. Um, but what he, he did in remaking and revisiting these stories was to fundamentally digest and find out what was the strength of this story that made it timeless. 
I still kind of don't think there's a better film version of Treasure Island uh, than Walt's version. Um, Treasure Planet is different, but I think an equally strong telling of that story and that story's values in a completely different fashion. And they don't exclude each other. Um, I have not seen the remake or the live action version of Mulan. What I have heard is kind of extraordinary and I'm really anxious to see it. Um, Mulan, you're operating, of course, with a legend that dates back in China into, you know, a jillion years of the story of Mulan. So it's a, a story that has been told and told and told and varied and changed and shifted and returned. So it's shown its strength, much like a Beauty and the Beast story, that it can be told over and over again, whether you're doing Beauty and the Beast or The Phantom of the Opera or even King Kong, you're doing the same story. Um, I can't remember. I'll remember the source, I'm sure, later on today, but there's somebody who said there's basically 12 stories in the human race that we tell over and over. And uh, I think Mulan is, is similar. I'm anxious to see... What's interesting to me is to see what the... I don't want to say limitations, but the differences between animation and live action. You can do a lot of things in animation that you can't do in live action. And I don't mean that physically, because anymore with CGI, you know, one of the things that actually drives me crazy about CGI is a lot of directors do not stay within the vernacular of live action filmmaking. So you're watching a live action film and suddenly the camera jumps up and flies around and does all of this stuff that you know it calls out its artificiality. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And that drives me nuts. Just because you can fly the camera all over the world, don't unless you have a reason to do it. So um, there are things within animation that you can do because it's appropriate to the medium, to the vernacular of the medium. Um, I'm interested to see what has been done with the Disney version of Mulan in carrying it into a live action medium and what changes have been made, what, what alterations to the storytelling of characters have been done because you're dealing once again with a completely different communication style in live action that is utterly different from that of the animated film. So those things always make me curious about how filmmakers approach and deal with those things. I'm excited, I'm anxious to see how it is. Um, you know, I kind of dug Aladdin a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun and I thought it, Didn't you know, I once, <laughs> once again, and I tell this to, to sort of fans who get riled up about this stuff. Um, luckily for us, part of the deal with the director of Mulan was not that we get to set fire and destroy all evidence of the animated feature. You know, they can live parallel lives and exist on the shelf together. Um, so nobody's taking anything from you by, you know, looking at this story again and taking it into a new, uh, a, a new telling. 
Totally agree with you. And I, I for one, also loved the new interpretation of Aladdin. Um, so that was a, a nice illustration of that. But there is a lot to be look forward to, not just the new live-action version of Mulan, but also your forthcoming releases. I know you have several on the docket. Um, the Disney monorail, Imagineering the Highway in the Sky, The mm -hmm. Tale of Transformation, 25 Years of Beauty and the Beast on Stage. You've, you've been very busy, and uh, I'd love if you could share a little bit with our listeners about what's in store. Well, the monorail book is one of those that started out that I wound up I started out going, well, yes, we can do this. It, it felt like it could be something interesting. My editor, Jennifer Eastwood, was absolutely nutso about this idea. I was interested, but I thought, gee, you know, monorails. Ultimately, it's one of the books that I think I'm most proud of. It's gorgeous. Uh, my co-creators of this book, uh, Paul Walski and, and uh, Vanessa Hunt, uh, the three of us worked sort of as a, a larger team envisioning what the book looks like and feels like. And ultimately, my editor, Jen Eastwood, said, well, she read the manuscript as it came in and said, well, here you've done it again. You've taken something and made it a story about Walt Disney. So I think that was sort of a compliment too, because it is another prism of telling a story about Walt Disney as a, as a future thinker, as a visionary. So I'm excited about that and it's gorgeous. And there's a ton of artwork in there that's never been published before. And another ton of artwork that you've seen reproduced from old transparencies and old photographs that have been newly scanned and are color accurate and beautiful and the book design in and of itself is the piece of art so i'm really excited about the monorails book our beauty and the beast book has been pushed back um, because the revival of beauty and the beast just got moved to i believe 2022 oh, so yes. our beauty and the beast book will probably come out late next year as opposed to late this year um, but once again, uh, an examination not only of the uh, origins of the stage musical and the new revival that Rob Jess Roth and the original team are putting together, but also uh, a look at the whole notion of tales, the tale of transformation and the transformative strength of this particular adaptation of Beauty and the Beast and what it's done not only within Disney, but in a sense worldwide. Because Beauty and the Beast, Disney's Beauty and the Beast is, um, I believe, currently the most produced regional and amateur show in the world. Uh, more than The Music Man or The Sound of Music or uh, any of the stalwarts of musical theater. Beauty and the Beast is... Beauty and the Beast has gone from a new Disney film in 1990 to a permanent cultural fixture. And that's a transformation that's part of that story. So that was really a fun uh, story to get my arms around and to be able to, there've been several Beauty and the Beast books and it's just interesting to do it in a different way 
once again, my design uh, colleague from the Monorails book and my Christmas card book, Paul Walski, is uh, doing the design of the Beauty and the Beast book. And we think we're taking it in, into interesting visual territory so that it's uh, uh, a beautiful companion to, to all of that to all of that story. Um, I'm also working, I told you at the very top of our interview about being hired into Disney by a man named Jim Cora back in 1986. I'm just finishing up with Jim, his memoir. Jim Cora was the, when he retired, he was the chairman of Disneyland International, but his Disney career began in 1957. And he continued, uh, in Disneyland, the opening team of Walt Disney World, on to being the man who exported the Disney park culture into Japan and Europe as the head of Disneyland International. And his uh, life story is uh, a personal memoir. It's a cultural examination of how Disney as, a, as a, an entity has become a worldwide culture all its own, and also a very Disney story about how these projects came to exist. So I've been working with Jim on his memoir for almost three years now, um, uh, hours and hours of interviews and discussions, and uh, now into actually finishing up the last couple of chapters. And, and that, I think, is going to be a, an essential book for Disney fans. Uh, I think it's still scheduled to go off to print in December, so it'll publish mid-2021. Uh, but it's called Not Just a Walk in the Park, and it's the memoir of Jim Cora, a uh, Disney legend and a terrific guy who had the good common sense to look at me and say, you're a Disney guy, and I'm going to hire you. And that started a whole lot of this. Wow, everything comes full circle. I, I love the notion behind that. And I also just um, am really thrilled to see these these different projects on the horizon. I think there will be no shortage of of items on people's holiday lists uh, for, for years to come, Jeff. So that's very cool. I'd like to conclude, as I do with every episode and every guest, some Disney-related questions. All are based on your opinion. So the segment is called Ask Them My Questions and Get Some Answers. This includes three standard music-related questions, two standard book-related questions, and then a random Disney question. I'm so, ready. Okay, you beat me to it because I was going to say, Jeff, are you ready? I can tell you are <laughs> set. Okay, so the first one for you, Jeff, and I think I know what the answer is, but I'll still ask it anyways. What Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Mary Poppins, followed closely by Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And your passion for Mary Poppins would translate into your Practically Poppins book. So, What it ultimately led to was, I always say that the three adult male influences in my young life were Walt Disney and Richard and Robert Sherman. And it ultimately led to a long and close personal friendship with Dick and Bob. And that, I think, is the wild reward of, of a lifetime. Next question. Yes. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? What 
Disney song most recently got stuck in my head? The one that perpetually gets stuck in my head is Belle from Beauty and the Beast. I don't know why, but I find myself walking around the house um, with, there goes the baker with his tray like always. Um, that tends to be an earworm a lot of the time. It's a fantastic earworm and probably one of <laughs> my favorite openings to any, any Disney animated film too. Absolutely. Jeff, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Music as in a song score. Um, I think there's a, or as a music score. Um, Maurice Jarre's score to Island at the Top of the World is, to me, pretty darn magnificent. Song scores, I am... I like the songs for the one and only genuine original family band because I think they are quintessentially Sherman, and I think the problem with several of them is they are too specific to the story subject. So they haven't gotten a popularity beyond the, this sort of little known film, which I don't think is even on Disney plus. Um, so those are, are sort of two of two of the things that people would give a listen to. Um, mm -hmm. Max Steiner's last score was a Disney film called those Callaways. And although I think that's interesting as trivia, I don't think the score is that good. Interesting observations. Yeah. I appreciate how you're shedding light on some of those um, more legendary films or those that maybe have been forgotten. Shifting over to books, Jeff, mm -hmm. as a reader, not just as an author, but as a reader, what's the most recent Disney book that you've read? The most recent Disney book that I have read, here is my dilemma. When I am writing, I tend to not read very much because I guess it's because I get crosstalk in my head uh, about uh, subjects and, and um, personalities and styles and so on. So when I'm writing a lot, I tend to not read a lot. Um, the most recent, what I have read most recently is not the most recent Disney book. I've been rereading Bob Thomas's Walt Disney biography, mm -hmm. um, mainly because I wanted a fresh understanding if, if, uh, if Bob Thomas's work is as solid as I remember it being. It gets criticized a lot for being, you know, squeaky clean and company approved. And what I'm discovering is it's actually not. It's actually a very um, balanced, um, makes me wish there was more. Um, but it doesn't have the sort of density of information that the Neil Gabler book does. And the Gabler book is fine. It's very dense, but I disagree with some of the conclusions that he jumps to within his biographical narrative. So that's an odd thing. I've, my most recent Disney book is also probably one of the older titles. Very good. 
So this, the second book question might be a little challenging since I know you have uh, some different projects in the works. If you could write a Disney book on any topic that you haven't already covered, uh, what might it be about? What are some interests of yours that you'd like to wow. potentially explore? Here's the, and you know, we, as you said, it's a difficult question because my dreams have come true on a lot of levels. Because, you know, back to doing a book about the founding Imagineers, I walked into the room and said, is this a, a thing? And basically I was told yes. For my entire career as a writer, I've wanted to do a Mary Poppins book. And I was afforded the opportunity with the release of Mary Poppins Returns to do that. Um, so my, and of course, my Christmas card book is one that I had dreamt of since probably about 1990 or so. And that turned out to be something beyond. Um, so in terms of the Disney stories to tell, um, I'd still, I'd love to revisit some earlier things and update them and uh, that sort of thing. But I've been really lucky that if I have a compelling Disney story to tell, I've been able to foolishly convince other people that it was worthwhile and been able to do it. That's pretty remarkable. And uh, yeah, I've, I definitely see that passion come through across the different titles you've released. The last question for you is a random one. So no no two guests get the same question. What Disney Plus original series or film or project would you say is a must watch? You know, I deal a lot in what I do with this issue of legacy. <clears throat> and I don't think that there is anything quite as remarkable as Leslie Iwerks' Imagineering Story. Oh, yeah. Um, Number one, for a Disney fan, it provides an incredible depth of background to something that I think people either have never understood before or had a vague notion about what it was. We've gotten used to over the decades of documentaries that dive deep on subjects in animation, but Leslie's work does the similar thing with. Uh, a backgrounding in Imagineering. Uh, the second, I think, extraordinary strength to it is she had essentially sort of a limitless schedule and a fairly generous budget. So the work is, the work reflects that relaxation, that it was being done in a, in a way to sort of tell its story in its own time and with the best possible resources. Um, the other thing is, I think Leslie, because of her background as a documentarian, a quote unquote, serious documentarian, Leslie was able to say things because of both a level of trust and because of her skill uh, that might not have been able to be put forward. Um, it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary work to come out 
in a public venue like that and not an academic or a or a scholarly venue it's just it's also very entertaining it's just interesting after interesting after interesting I agree with you more. I, I, I watched the series twice and I'm like, I'm ready for a third viewing. It's fantastic. And, well, and once again, that's the other Disney aspect to it because the nuances that you're able to draw from it on repeated viewings, I think will continue to pay off. Absolutely. Jeff, finally, how can listeners follow your work and or get in touch with you or follow you on social media? Well, I am in the midst of building my website right now as we speak. I have a Facebook page, and I tend to avoid social media because it's an enormous time and attention suck. <laughs> but, you know, once again, I do have a, a, a Facebook uh, author page, and I'll have a website up uh, pretty darn soon that um, hopefully will have a little bit more background and depth and, and uh, information. Um, and those, those are the key uh, contact points. And how about purchasing your books? Where can, where can people find them? Um, Amazon is the go-to, Barnes & Noble, and Disney Books. Um, if you go to DisneyBooks.com, I think is the – and do an author search. They tend to have only my most current stuff on the Disney Books site, so – if you do a Barnes and Noble or an Amazon search, that's the best resource. Very good. Jeff, again, always a privilege to learn from you and to hear your stories and experiences. I, I know as a, a reader, I'm consistently very much engaged in your work and, and that of your contemporaries and really highlighting wonderful aspects of the Walt Disney Company and its and its creations. And I thank you for your time, your work, and your friendship too. All of those are a pleasure in my life. I appreciate being asked. All right, thanks so much, Jeff, for coming on Notably Disney. It really was a wonderful conversation. And I learned a lot more about Mulan through this conversation. I'm sure you did too. It's a really incredible film and as, as indicated, illustrated beautifully um, via both the visuals and accompanying text in the Art of Mulan book. It's a coffee table book that you'll want to have in your household if you don't already. And there's a lot to look forward to with some of Jeff's upcoming projects, as he mentioned. So thank you again, Jeff. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports, that's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.